you know what it's like to get ready for a house guest who's never been to your home. You want to make a, you know what it's like to make a good impression. The International Olympic Committee arrived in Beijing to see if it was a suitable city for the 2000 Olympics. They arrived in March of 1993. It was, uh, they arrived to a city officially of 13 million people, but actually it was much larger. The place was busy getting ready for this amazing visit because they knew that first impressions meant everything. And the government said in the paper that they wanted to sway to influence the people they called the gods of the IOC. And the first, uh, the first order of business happened long before they came. Um, they, they said this, uh, it was published in the Beijing Daily. A senior official said this, to build a city of no flies is a requirement for a highly civilized modern society. So Beijing purchased 130 tons of pesticides and 200,000 fly swatters. And then they held training courses on fly eradication. And the media gave detailed instructions on what tactics were the most efficient, where the enemy could be located, and what pesticides might be most effective. And then uh, the battle looked like it had been won with the flies as the cold winter came, but then that year there was a warm spring and all the flies came back just before the Olympic Committee arrived. It was an amazing time there. The police had cleared all of the sidewalks, all of the market stalls were eliminated. The slums were hidden behind plastic barriers. Beggars were banished uh, outside of the city or to the city limits, and all trucks in Beijing were outlawed. Factories were shut down weeks in advance to clean up the air. Migrant workers were not allowed in the city. Buses were empty. 10 million residents found themselves without, uh, without heat in the winter cold because authorities had stopped all the power plants from uh, producing their pollutants. They're all mostly coal or coke. Alternate license plate plans were put in each day so that there was just half of the traffic of those who were there. No coal cooking was allowed. In other words, no cooking was allowed. For weeks before the Olympic, the people, though, were steaming mad. Uh, you imagine a Chinese person without hot rice, three meals a day. They were not happy. And then uh, you could see uh, workers cleaning the railings, uh, just citizens cleaning mandatory volunteership, uh, cleaning railings, with some of them with toothbrushes. And then just uh, before the plane landed with the Olympic Committee on it, all of the, all of the, uh, the mud or the dried dirt or the cake dirt was sprayed with green paint. So it looked like it was just grass everywhere, all over Beijing, all the way from the airport uh, to the hotel they were staying in, the China World Hotel. And then when they arrived, the route from the airport all the way to the hotel had at least 10 people, it was in the paper, 10 people thick for about 10 miles, I want to say, 
uh, all the way to the hotel, which in the paper is described as a spontaneous outburst of affection for the Olympic Committee. Police uh, nabbed all the litter bugs and anyone who spat on the sidewalks. It was paradise to be there. The sun actually shone. Uh, the sky was blue. Uh, Cynthia and I, for the first time in our life, thought, the city is nice. It's really nice. And then when they arrived at the China World, each delegate was given a $40,000 gift basket during the inspection tour that March. And inside the baskets were precious gems and antiques. But the Olympic Committee was not fool. Uh, they did not get the bid. They had to wait another eight years. Beijing lost out to Sydney that year. And the idea of making a phony first impression is not new. It's much older. In the late 18th century, Catherine the Great of Russia announced that she wanted to, to tour the southern part of her empire. She wanted to be accompanied by several foreign ambassadors. And uh, the governor of the area where she wanted to tour, one part of her tour, was a name, man named Gregory Potemkin. And he desperately wanted to impress her visitors. And so he went to remarkable lengths to showcase uh, the beauty and the success and the happiness, the accomplishments of that area. So part of her journey went down the Dnieper River, and she pointed out bustling hamlets along the shore and industrious and happy townspeople. The only problem was, it was all for show. Uh, Potemkin had assembled uh, pasteboard facades of shops and homes, and he'd even positioned busy, happy-looking peasants to create this image of a happy and prosperous economy. And then the, once the party of state had passed down the Dnieper, they quickly, uh, Potemkin and all of his workers, quickly disassembled the village and then overnight moved it downstream and re-erected it for them to pass by again the next day. Although mo modern historians have questioned the truthfulness of this story, the term Potemkin village has entered into the world's vocabulary. It refers to anyone who attempts to make others think that they are better than they actually are. It's part of our human nature, isn't it, to want to look our best. It's why so many of us work on the outside of our homes, so we keep our cars washed, why we work hard to get our hair just right for the day, we choose our clothes for the maximum benefit of the occasion, whatever that perceived benefit might be. There's nothing wrong with shining our shoes or smelling our best, but you can go to uh, extremes. Uh, there's nothing wrong with um, something I used to do is hide the dishes in the oven when a surprise guest would come, or then when tragically they asked to use the bathroom, then just a minute um, I left my toothbrush out, and then you throw all of the towels behind the shower curtain. But taken to extremes, this desire to impress can shift from useful to deceitful. The prophets often raised warnings about this in the Bible. Those who draw near to the Lord with their mouths and their lips, but whose hearts are far from the Lord. God can see into our hearts. He's not a man that he can be fooled, Scripture tells us. Jesus was tender with those who were humble in heart, but he was rather hard quite harsh 
with the hypocrites of his day. He was rough on those who tried to appear righteous, who actually were not. Those who had tried to appear righteous to win the praise of the world, or wealth, or favor, or position, all the while oppressing people that they should have been blessing. The Savior, as we heard, compared them to whitewashed tombs. Look lovely on the outside, but inside are filled with dead man's bones. In our day, the Lord would have similar words for those of us who would try to cover our sins or our pride or vain ambition. And when we do this, the Lord is grieved. He doesn't want our public lives to be a Potemkin village. We know that he may even stop up his ears to our prayers when we live that way, when the way we live at home is contrary to the way we live in public sometimes. He says that he will stop up his ears to couples whose husbands don't treat their wives with respect as a, a weaker partner, not as heirs of the gracious gift of life in 1 Peter 3. So why do we try to appear active in our faith on the outside when on the inside perhaps we have forsaken our first love? as we just heard read from John in Revelation 2. Sometimes it's just that we lose our focus on the essence of the gospel. Why? Maybe pressures to conform or to compete in a, in a highly competitive world. Sometimes there's even pressure to perform in the church. So when it's really time to perform spiritually, we can grab a form of godliness but deny its power. And the gospel tells us that those kinds of people with the form of godliness denying the power of Jesus don't even associate with them, have nothing to do with them, the gospel says. So we don't want to have only a form of godliness. We, we, want to, um, we don't want to craft anything to gain position or respect. When we show on the outside what's really not on the inside, then we're a Potemkin village. I once borrowed a, a Suburban for my family. We were on vacation. And I noticed the rig had some problems with it. It had um, some, I thought, serious problems. There was a cracked windshield. There was, um, the oil was black as can be. Um, the oil filter was filthy, of course. The wiper blades were shot. A headlight was out. And the brakes uh, were shot. And I had the thing fixed before I returned it. But we were on such a rush timetable the day we left, with all of the children and all, that there was no time to vacuum the car or wash all the dust off the outside. The person I borrowed the car from was furious that I had uh, been so insensitive as to return a dirty car. Jesus says that when he looks at us, he looks right through our outward appearance, and he can see right under our hoods. And that's a good thing. He can look and see if, if we've got fresh oil of the Holy Spirit in us, or he can see if uh, we're a little dark of spirit and dirty. Do not run the risk of being a Christian Pharisee, a shiny car with a gunky engine. We all have to avoid being whitewashed tombs, clean on the outside and inside dirty. The outside of us tells some things, but not the whole story. Outside, we can com 
appear and completely appear to be self-sufficient. But inside we can be wretched and poor, blind and naked, like one church in Revelation. It is time now to examine ourselves and institute a course correction. You say, why? We just went through Lent. Well, because the Bible says that we're to do that kind of thing daily. Not just seasonally because we're in a liturgical church, but we're to examine ourselves daily. As long as your chest is going up and down, you ought to be about this. We can correct our relationships with each other immediately today. We can correct them with God overnight or before nightfall. The desire to appear better than we really are is not just something that we need to watch out for in our personal lives. As we heard in the book of Revelation, we need to watch out for it also in our church. We can be prayerful when we're here. We can lead up a prayer ministry, maybe in a corner or somewhere, appear very spiritual, and then comes Monday and Tuesday. Not so. Sunday ought to be a reflection of what goes on during the week. We don't put on a better person on Sunday. Maybe better clothes, maybe not. Perhaps more to the point, um, sometimes when we're here, we're eager to pray with people that we seldom see during the week. But with the people we see every day, we don't grab them and say, Let's have a time of prayer together. That's what the Lord wants. Our Sundays, our prayerful Sundays, ought to reflect what goes on in our homes. I know men who crave leadership roles in the church, who do not take a role of spiritual leadership in their homes. Why should anyone want to preach to a congregation if they don't preach or teach in their own homes? That they don't pull aside their wife, for instance, and share the gospel or witness or open the word of God with them or with their children. That's kind of like being a Christian, so to speak, Potemkin village. Why crave spiritual recognition on Sunday but with those you seldom see, but not on Monday with those you see all the time? I know church on Sundays and whenever we meet together is really important. But the primary unit of the church, assuming most of you live with someone, is your home. We can't crave outreach when we don't have adequate in-reach. So, for instance, take a high holy day. Take mm, Good Friday or Ash Wednesday. What a great time to have a service in your homes. What a great time to pull your family aside and, and have some ashes and Put them on their heads and and say the liturgical words and be a priest or a priestess in your own home. Speak the words there. Live the gospel. Live our gospel life primarily, primarily in our homes. It's so easy to miss the main thing. We can miss the most important congregation that we're to meet uh, daily the one that lives in our own home for most of us. That's why elders in the church were chosen not so much by the way they behaved in public, although that matters. They were chosen by how they behaved in their homes. Were they worthy ministers of the gospel with their own family? 
with their children in their living rooms and their kitchen tables. That's how they were chosen. And so, yes, our home is our castle, but it's also our primary place of worship. Home is the place where you get fed daily, both kinds of feeding. Mega churches have done studies on this and found that they, they, they are not cultivating effective Christians because they have put forth the idea that you get fed when you come in here or places like here. And they, they have had to make changes that the primary Christian life, the daily feeding, has got to be self-feeding. And so the best place, for instance, to disciple a Christian is not in the coffee shop, if you ever have an, a chance, and probably all of us will or have. Invite someone into your home. That's where they can see how to become a Christian. Just like in the book, Adventures of Andreas, book one, Aranya. A disciple named Pompompulus snuck into his master's bedroom and hid under his master's bed. And when his master Hermitus discovered this, he asked him why he did it. And Pompompulus said, to find the secret for myself. Because Pompopulus knew that that's where you learn the real secrets of a family or a person is when you're in their home. That's where you learn about a person's real character. If you haven't had a chance to do that, it is a great opportunity to, to refocus that my life as a Christian is sun up to sundown and then sundown to sun up seven days a week. In John 5, we learn that Jesus didn't have to listen to people under the bed. He could, he could look into a heart as soon as he met them in public. He says, I know that you don't have the love of God in your hearts, he said to some strangers. Or in Mark 2, immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was where they, what they were thinking in their hearts. Or in 1 Corinthians, God will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of people's hearts. So we, we have to... We have to examine them all the time, our motives. Seven days a week, just like we heard so beautifully read. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me. Jesus examines the hearts of congregations, too. So just like we heard two letters to two different congregations, they were two compl almost completely different letters to two different congregations. We want to set goals for ourselves. The modern church movement says you need to have a vision statement, a mission and vision and these kind of things. And so we can do that here beyond Acts 2.42. We, we can decide to make lofty declarations, set target numbers, percentages. We can all agree on goals. We can come up with outreach strategies. And some of us want to. But maybe in a moment of love with eyes wide open, we can see a woman next to us whose husband has recently betrayed her or left her or notice a member struggling with doubts or depression or loneliness or someone next to us with a real health problem and they have no medical coverage. Or we can notice someone that just has a barely a flicker of the flame of love in their marriage or learn of a brother or sister struggling with addiction who's sitting right next to you. 
Or we can have our heart broken over someone who has no work in this really expensive world, in this really expensive part of the world. And so our goals for ministry, even here at Celebration, can sometimes hit way closer to home than we might come up with in a prayer meeting. And we can become convinced, maybe, that we want to make a difference to those who are already here, sitting next to us. And we want to clean up our own heart, and we want to clean up our own hearth. So what is your ministry in your home like? It would be great to have a, oh, what is that called? Google Glass. So maybe you could look at your own life and see, ah, see how different it is in, in my house than it is in this other house, or how different it is in my house this week than it was last week. I've finally gotten together. What is your ministry at home like? What is your ministry here like to those who are right here? Maybe you decide that you're not going to allow a hungry person to go by unnoticed, or someone who's sick or needy pass by you. Maybe that's how you decide, this is how I'm going to live my life for the next season. Because you want to keep the main thing the main thing. You want to love your neighbor. And who is your neighbor? It's anyone you see who God places you in a position to see their need and places you near enough or able enough to meet that need. Can we measure the things that matter most? How can we measure the main thing for the Christian life? All of us, how can we? What God wants for you and for this church, we, we can't always measure. How do you measure a personal testimony? How do you measure the truth spoken in love? How do you measure integrity in a home? How can I measure that for you? How do you measure a private word that someone has with you that is perfectly timed by the Holy Spirit? How do you measure your love of God, your love of God's Word? How do you measure the quality of your prayers? How do you measure the depth of them? How do you measure the genuineness of a smile or a crack in a voice when someone's reading Scripture and you can see that something has happened in that person that maybe ought to be happening in you. Many of the things that we can count do not count to God. And many of the things that we cannot count do count to Him. I wonder if many of the things we want to do as a church are just simply uh, figuring out how to become a Christian Potemkin village, a performance like before the IOC. We don't want to do things that just look good from a distance. We don't want to erect plasterboard things in our lives that others can see that really are not on the shoreline of our lives in reality. We don't want to fool ourselves or others. We want to be real Christians. My prayer for all of us is that we are that. None of us here would be a Potemkin village. And that might not, our village might not really look like a White House. It might look more like Salts and Eaton's short story, Matriona's House. How many of you have read that? It's a novella written in 1959 by Salts and It's his most read short story. The narrator is a former prisoner of a gulag, and when he gets out, Matriona offers him a place, her tiny place, to, to live with her 
Some of you do that. You, you offer people to live in your homes. That's what Matriona did, her tiny rundown home. But he's told not to expect any fancy cooking. And the narrator sleeps on a cot, and Matriona sleeps near the stove, the stove, and she works on a farm for little or no pay. And one night, a, a group of drunken farmers take a tractor without her permission. They decide to move some wood from her home. There's this big scene. They've got to, to, to make the deed of the land active. They have to have some wood, and there's no wood except Matriona's outhouse. And she feels like she's going to die soon anyway, so she says, okay, take my outhouse. And they take this tractor that they shouldn't have, and they do it in the middle of the night. And this leads to that, and that leads to this, and there's an accident. They're pulling too much at one time. They get stuck on the train tracks. And after a while, the narrator describes how he realizes that Matriona is dead, helping these people move the wood from her outhouse. The character has been described as the only true Christian and the only true communist. I may have read this before, but I think I have somewhere. But here's the end of Matriona's house. She was not a Potemkin Christian. So the narrator is saying, only then, listening to disapproving comments of her sister-in-law, Matriona's, did I see an image of Matriona which I had never perceived before, even while living under her roof. It was true, every other cottage had its pig, yet she had none. What could be easier than to fatten up a greedy pig whose sole object in life was food? Boil it in a bucket, boil a bucket full of swill three times a day, make it the center of one's existence, then slaughter it for lard and bacon. Yet, Matriona never wanted one. She was a poor housekeeper. In other words, she refused to strain herself to buy gadgets and possessions and then guard them and care for them more than her own life. She never cared for smart clothes, the garments that embellish the ugly and disguise the wicked. Misunderstood and rejected by her husband, a stranger to her own family despite her happy, amiable temperament, comical, so foolish that she worked for others for no reward, this woman, who had buried all her six children, had stored up no earthly goods, nothing but a dirty white goat, a lame cat, and a row of fig plants. None of us who lived close to her perceived that she was the one righteous person without whom, as the saying goes, no city can stand, neither can the whole world. My brothers and sisters, if Jesus Christ were to come here today, now, ahead of Judgment Day, and he will come for judgment, it's on its way, and ask you for an accounting of your stewardship or an accounting of the stewardship of this church, I'm quite sure he would not take a look at the programs and statistics. He would not count how many goats or cats we had acquired over our run. How many outreaches, I don't think. How many short-term missions, I don't, I don't think. What our Savior would examine, if he's the same Savior who gave the word to those two churches in Revelation, he would examine our hearts. He would want to know how we love and minister to those in our care every day. 
He would want to know how we show love to our spouse or to the one living in our house, in some cases to our ex-spouse, to our children, how we lighten their load daily. It's a good thing to ask, how can I, Lord, lighten the load of the people I'm living with and love? How do we do that for each other? Share that with each other here in church. Why are you here today? I hope it's because you desire to follow Jesus with all your heart and learn how to more effectively minister to those in need. I hope it's because um, you have a passion to learn how to discern God's will in a world that will do everything it can to talk us into doing something else. I hope you're here to learn God's word better that will never pass away because you love our Heavenly Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. And the one thing you want is to be more filled with the Holy Spirit every day as long as it is called today. That's why so many of us here are willing to give such sacrifice, uh, not just to worship God with our lips, but with our exteriors and interiors. So whether your testimony is pure today, that you really know who Jesus is, or whether your testimony is more like a Potemkin village. The good news is that even the smallest act of discipleship, even the smallest spark of faith can be ignited into a bonfire. In fact, that's how most bonfires are started, with a single spark. So if you feel small and weak like Matriona sometimes, that's good news. The weak among us can become spiritually strong. One of the best sermons I ever heard from a friend of mine was given after a night he, he couldn't sleep because he was so sick. And I said, you're in good shape. And he gave a fantastic sermon. The weakest among us can become spiritually strong because God is no respecter of persons and he looks with great favor on those who are humble. But he does not look on those who are proud. God's promises are sure and certain built on a foundation of testimony, prophecy, and promise. We can be forgiven of all our sins. We just went through that through Lent, and we were assured of that on Resurrection Sunday. We can be forgiven of all unrighteousness. And we can continue to embrace an amazing hunger for Jesus Christ and for his spirit and for the Father. We hunger now, don't we? But Jesus says that there will come a time when none of his people will hunger. They will hunger no more, neither thirst anymore. For in Revelation 7, the lamb at the center of the throne will be your shepherd. He will lead us all to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. But this cannot happen if we like to live our life as a facade, any kind of show. Real discipleship is showing God who we are, showing each other who we are, seeing God for who he is and seeing ourselves for who we are. You're not a Potemkin village. 
The church is not a place like downstairs. I'm not making fun of it downstairs, but we hang pictures of ourselves looking our best. It's, it's more like an, it's not an art gallery. It's a place where you've got all these smudged paintings and we're busy rubbing off the things that have come on top of us over our life. And sometimes it's a, it's a daily thing. And that's part of what we help each other to do in a good way. God opposes, opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble and the oppressed, James says. You know, Jesus was the one who changed the world more than any other person, yeah? My wife always says he split time in half. But his most majestic service was in moments that were private with only a few observers. And sometimes he would say, don't tell anybody I did this for you. It's just between us. And then he would say, don't even let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. The praise of the world meant nothing to Jesus. Zero. His single purpose was to serve the Father. His single purpose was to please someone in another world. To do only what he saw God the Father doing. To say only what he heard the Father saying and accomplish all that the Father had given him to do. And I think we would all do well to follow that example. This is our high calling to be agents of Christ. To love as he loved. To serve as he served. And to do it beginning close in our homes. When our homes look like Sunday evenings and better, we're going to be in great shape to explode not only as a church, but personally. That men can be priests in their families and in their homes. Unless you live at home, I don't know how to figure that out. But your home is your primary church. Period. It's your primary place of worship, single or married or widowed or whatever. On Sundays, we come together as the high point of the week behind us and a high point of the launch ahead. I pray that we will resist the temptation to draw attention to ourselves or be hard on ourselves, but instead be genuine and patient disciples of the Lord. I pray that we will never be or never offer anyone else in this country or anywhere we go a gospel that is like a Potemkin village, but instead a kingdom of God that is built, as Paul said to Timothy, quoting numbers on a sure foundation.